2: Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? Who did they worship? What were they like? How did they begin? And how did they end? Let's find out on this special episode of Fan of History. where we are gonna talk about who they worshiped.
1: Oh yes, we are. And the easy answer is Asher. Plus a thousand more, maybe.
2: But the answer is Asher. (laughs) (laughs) If there is only
1: one God, how can there be a thousand gods?
2: Well, that's a good question. And you helped me answer this question once too, when it related to Christianity. If there's only one God, how could there be three gods? I do love
1: the thing that whereas Christian thinks, okay, you worship uh, the swamp God, that's heresy. But an Assyrian goes, oh, you worship the swan god, he is Asher.
2: You're right. That's, that's basically how it goes, I, you know, and so we're done with this episode. No. <laughs> uh-huh.
1: Please check out our Patreon. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh-huh. So, I mean, you wouldn't think that, and it's it's somewhat controversial amongst, you know, the historians who discuss this. You also have to realize, you know, the Assyrian Empire was an empire, and there was people all over that would come from different cultures. And, you know, some of them, I would think, were more in the traditional, there's a thousand gods, right? So, you know, and other ones in the, you know, tradition of, and they're all uh, an aspect of Asher. So, you know, if you are going to dig into this, so you may ask an Assyrian, how many gods are there? And so basically the gods were originally, you know, centered on each city and town. So each town has a god, and then most gods have a family, so then they'd have a wife and a couple of kids. So you add up the towns, and you could have like at least a thousand gods. And um, so the Hittites used to say that, that how many gods are there? And they said, well, there's about a thousand gods. So that's kind of how we where we get that from.
1: I heard another answer to this question. How many gods are there in Assyria? And the answer was, uh, there are less than in Babylonia. Oh. <laughs> but the the reason was that Babylonia just has more cities and more settlements.
2: And then when they became part of the empire, then they became part of the, their gods.
1: Yes. And of course, there are some gods that are in several cities.
2: Of course, yes, definitely. And then there's the main gods, of which we'll talk about, too. There's the main, main gods, and then there's all these minor deities. Um, and
1: then there's Asher. And then there's Asher.
2: So I would think it's sort of like, if you we were to walk to go to just, um, you know, a Christian, a Catholic that wasn't super pious, let's say, and ask them how many gods there were, they'd say one. And then if you ask them about Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and they really couldn't, they really wouldn't explain that, because it's kind of unexplainable anyway. And it's that's sort of the same thing. Basically, according to, um, you know, the theology, and the deep theology, and there's a historian named Simo Parpola. He's a Finnish Assyriologist, and he's he's talks a lot about the Assyrian monotheism. So basically, Asher reflected the other gods, but actually he reflected Anu, who was the king of the gods, and now being he was the, traditionally the, you know, king of the Mesopotamian pantheon, Anu. So it's A N U. So he, Asher reflected him. And then Anu had the rest of the gods, and then there's a whole hierarchy of that, sons and grandsons and all that kind of thing. But those are known, and you'll see a lot of times in the inscriptions the great gods. So it'll say Asher and the great gods. So the great gods are are they're that, I guess, reflection of Asher that is his council. And interestingly, these gods sort of reflect. The pyramid, like you discussed before, they all have their little parts in the pantheon.
1: So it's a power pyramid of gods.
2: Yeah. And and, and in the the Judeo-Christian tradition, these these gods maybe looked at maybe kind of like archangels. And then maybe the minor gods you could think of as saints. You know how people light candles to saints, and they do things like that. And then, you know, we hear about the archangel Michael, he came and did this and that. So it was similar to that you had uh, all the different um you know main gods and then you had your lesser deities but they definitely worshiped them all I mean they definitely let's say we when we say worship it's it's kind of different than we think today when if people go to church and they sort of have a ceremony we had they had ceremonies but the ceremonies were different they were in um temples of course
1: But it's like the the old truth that in the old religions, it didn't matter what you believed. It mattered what you did. That's exactly. So the sermonists were a lot more about doing things than uh, proving your belief in the God.
2: They were so much about that. It's really hard, I think, for modern people, especially religious modern people, or when we think in the terms of religiosity, of what it was. I mean, it was literally the ritual of what you had to do. You know, it wasn't like how if you had a pure thought or you were good to your neighbor or things like that. It was like, you know, you brought a sacrifice to the temple when you were supposed to bring a sacrifice to the temple and you did what you were supposed to do.
1: Yeah, if if you were going on a long sea voyage, you sacrificed something to the sea god. Exactly. I understand also that Asher was a very high god, that a normal Assyrian would never address Asher. Right, like only the king and the very important people could talk to Asher.
2: Exactly. Even today, we say you know, though people be you know, some people have their saints where they, I mean, I was raised Catholic and I have I'm Italian and Polish and we have these you know these people who were very pious and they would have a certain saint that they you know that they had they were I don't know I guess they didn't worship them but they you know like for example Catholics say the rosary that's praying to Mary well Mary is supposed a human being. Well, I guess, you No, know, however you want to say it. But, you know, she wasn't the creator of the universe, but people, worship pray to her. They ask her to intercede to the creator of the universe, who is, I guess, you know, God, Jesus' father. It's very complicated. If there is such a thing, that's why it's so complicated. <laughs> Religion is never easy. No. But so, you know, when we say a temple the Assyrians would have called that a house of the particular god. So the temple is is where a god is thought to actually live. And at the same time, the temple is also a representation of that deity. So, you know, the building is, to a certain degree, almost like a holy being as well. And, And it's funny, not only the temple would have a name, you know, like the Temple of Ishtar or this, but it also, the individual components have names, like the door would have a name, the lock has a name. So it's more than just a building; it's it's a living creature in a way, and it's an aspect of the deity, and at the same time, it is the deity. So, and you know, like if you read in the Bible, Gary will uh, will attest to this too. When they talk about building the temple, that's the sanctuary and the temple of God of Yahweh, they're very. It's very specific. It's like there will be a gold lamp over here and it's not like a lamp like we know it's a different kind of thing but there was all these gold lamps and then there was you know this would be have ivory and there's a rug here it's very it's almost like an architectural you know description of how you're going to build this temple it was probably how it was actually built and then they wrote it then but but you know that was a big part of it so is
1: is the deity the temple or is he the statue
2: he so what it is is you have the people, what they wanted to do was make the temple and the statue so attractive to the god that he would want to visit it. So that's why you make the food and you do the sacrifice. Apparently the gods could, (laughs) they could smell that burnt barbecue. So when you have a a sacrifice, they would attract the god to come into the temple and then into his statue and then be present with the people during the ceremony. So the regular daily feeding ceremonies and things were the so-called priests, but almost anybody could be a priest. Um, you could be like of a of a good family, and each family would have a different role to play at the temple. And there was even like a mouth-opening ceremony, where it was, i mean obviously never opened, but the mouth would open, and you know, somehow you feed feed the you know the god. But luckily, the food never really disappeared, so you had all this food to eat after the sacrifice. Hmm. So like yeah like I was saying like an average the average citizen would have a part to play in the temple. So they they didn't really have a clergy the way we think of it today. Um the differentiation between a worshipper and a priest is not really black and white. So like like I said, lots of people
1: Isn't that very similar to the the Romans of the Republic like when Julius Caesar ends up being the Pontifex Maximus?
2: Yes, right. It's yeah, right. So it's more like an important I I I, I'm t- I I always really think about it. It's like, I really believe that Christianity surpassed ancient religions, because these ancient religions still counted on how much wealth you had in the real world. You know, where Christianity is like, you could go to heaven and be the king and in, in the king, and, you know, go to the king, and be with the king in heaven. It doesn't matter who you are. But in these ancient religions, you know, if, well, if you're Julius Caesar, you get to be this. Or if you're, you know, a wealthy family, you get to do that. and. And in Egypt, I mean, you had to buy these little dolls to put in, the, in your grave with you. And the more money you had, the more dolls you had to take care of you. And if you didn't, well, too bad for you.
1: No doubt uh, the great uh, PR and marketing guy of Christianity, Paul, yeah. made a couple of <laughs> good decisions. Yeah. Appeal to the poor, the slaves, women, and just grow.
2: Yeah, it is. There you go. Keep that in mind. That's the charm. It so it totally did, it really really did, and 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 not to just be chewed all over, but we, as you mentioned, Paul, um, uh, Simo Parpola will will basically, you, you know, says a lot of the Assyrian basic theology, you know, he sort of picked up on and used, you know, when he was talking about Christianity. I don't want to go down that path too much, that could upset people and that kind of thing. But you know, there is a lot of similarities in it, and the the Assyrian Christian Church. I mean, the Assyrians and in in Syria itself, they became Christian pretty quickly. You know, like they were like, yeah, we get this, tr- tr- you know, this whole thing, yeah, yeah, we're we're fine with that.
1: That's true. They did.
2: Yeah, they were totally into it, and they're like, yeah, yeah, we got it. Oh, a thousand, okay, there's three gods. Uh, yeah, he's all part of one. Yep, because in a way, I do believe, and they near and from doing this podcast and and just studying these last few years, I do believe that there was a somewhat of a universal god like we're talking about Asher. Because obviously Yahweh became that, and um, in Egypt they they even you know in 1400 B.C.E. kind of when they had the cult of Akhenaten and you know the sun god and and my point is though you see that winged disk so the Assyrians have the winged disk but the Egyptians have a winged disk and then even in the seals of Hezekiah there's a winged disk so some people will say you know see Hezekiah was he was Egyptian or he was but really I believe in my opinion. That that winged disc symbolizes this transcendent god, this asher type transcendent god. You know, I think in this period God was these this how do I put it? It doesn't seem logical to like say, well, the God these gods made the world out of clay and all these, you know, kinda odd seem primitive type things. So we needed this more esoteric, transcendent god, and then he created all these other gods to manage the earth. That's kind of a theology in a nutshell, in my opinion.
1: So the winged disc in Assyrian pictures means Asher in a sense?
2: It means Asher.
1: But then we have to talk about this little guy with wings and a bow and arrow.
2: Is he Asher too?
1: It's also depicted in a lot of places. Like this is Asher, the god of war, the almighty god. And then you get... For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
0: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
1: A rather tiny guy with wings, huge king-like beard, and a bow and arrow.
2: He he could be um and I'm sorry, I'm I it's I gotta excuse on my age because I don't remember things as I did, but he is probably like I think Ninurta maybe as a representative. Because he there's there's different gods that represent different things of humanity. There's this, the main gods have numbers. So so if you remember, Asher reflected Anu. So he's one. Anu is one. And then E A E U, I think he's he's the water god, the fish. He's sixty. So he's next. So he so Anu, right? He then he created or gave birth to, I believe, with Ishtar as the mother. That could be wrong. Okay? So Anu, and then E is sixty. Then Marduk, he's important. Then Nabu. He's number forty. Then there's Sin, he's the moon god. Then there's Shamas. He's the sun god. And then you have Adad, he's the storm god, who was sort of Yahweh like. You have Ishtar again, she's the mother of heaven. And then Nergal, He is the um the one who's more of the he would be the one who is maybe with the bow and arrow. Okay. And then each of these are re- represented by different by different planets. So I don't know which ones they all are. You know what? I will post it on the, store and the notes and then the thing. And you know, it would be boring here me to say which each one is. But each one has his own planet. And so those are the major gods. And, and you know, with, you, with the different images, sometimes... Well, I shouldn't say that about Assyria because their images stayed the same. So I'm not 100% sure about that winged, bearded... Basically, he'd be the king, right? With... With a bow and arrow and some wings?
1: He seems to be flying above the, the king and the armies.
2: Oh, he's flying above the king and the armies.
1: So it's very godlike. I actually play a superhero MMO where one of my characters is Asher, the god of war. And I have depicted this flying little guy.
2: Ah, well, we have to look into that better. <laughs> <laughs> if
1: any of you listeners know the answer to this, please tell us.
2: Yeah, please let us know. But see, that's the thing about religion, and even in the Assyrian, you know, where we consider him the Asher, the god of war, but like we said, like they, I mean, maybe he was a god of war in 2000 BC, but by now, he's kind of like Yahweh, because Yahweh was a storm god, we believe, and then he became the all-transcendent god of, you know, even to our people today, where Asher's sort of like that, in my opinion.
1: I always thought that it would be natural for the Assyrians to have the war god as the number one god.
2: You would think so. I mean, there you gotta. I mean, if you if you were to take the look at the Bible, I mean, their God seems pretty war godish too, you know. So I believe,
1: at least in the Old Testament.
2: Yeah, well, this is the time. Here is what's so interesting: cause I went down another rat hole, not a rat hole. I'm down a really interesting tangent where, um, another uh, her name is, um Brenda Barbara Levine, and she talks about how the Assyrians, just the Assyrian general, their religion, their and the fact that they were there. Actually, led to Hebrew monotheism. And funny, like thinking in other words, like Sina- especially Sennacherib. So Sennacherib's campaigns, you know, in the Levant, like solidified, you know, Israelite monotheism. So the the biggest worshiper of Asher, actually, you know, made the you know, Yahweh the, the chief of the world. Interesting, right? Because so they, you know, first another thing, and she says too you got to really realize that people were aware of other cultures that were close to them. Like, the Israel people in Israel were uh, familiar with Assyria, obviously. And this is the time of um, Isaiah and these kind of things. So, you know, and then the fact that each area has its own, you know, chief god. Like, the Assyrians had Asher. The um, Israelites had Yahweh. The Babylonians had Marduk. And so these... Were the you know their main gods, but at this time Asher it seems to be the guy in charge because he's kicking Yahweh's butt down in Israel, except for it didn't take Jerusalem, so that's a whole thing. But he conquers; they conquer Babylon, right? They steal the Marduk statue. So this is like not only war on earth, but it's war in heaven. And I think some of these other religions were thinking like, well, if our, how could our God not be? You know, I thought our God would protect us, and then He doesn't, and I all this churn and through, you know, generations and people that are in the priestly type of profession and theology, I, I you know, imagine this is where it all just came from. It's, religion is always a changing type of thing, because we never seem to have a God literally come down, like, on television and however, to get to everybody and say, this is what it is. Always, like, does it through a sheep's liver or something. Yep. Which is we which is maybe a good um, transition. We could... Uh, talk a little bit about divination yes please so this is how you know that the, this is more of the details of how the gods communicated with people like the literal like you know okay you're an esoteric you know asher and all this stuff but what exactly is going to happen this is what they kind of want to know so they had um you know make plans in the future so there's a couple ways they mostly did it there's two um the one is they would cut the liver of a sheep. This is called extepicy. Extep- I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but it's E-X. They- <laughs> You'll see it if you ever read it. Basically, that okay. means, you know, you, you cut a And in Syria, they cut um, a sheep, and the sheep, of course, was sacrificed to the god. So this was now the god's sheep. So if I sacrifice a god to, you know, Marduk or somebody, this is the god's sheep. So then you would cut the liver... And then there's 13 uh, points in the liver where they can check, and you added them up. So because that's an odd number, so if you had like, it's so these, basically it was like a magic eight ball. The question was yes or no. Will there be trouble in the west? You know. And then they look at the sheep's liver, and if you had uh, seven yeses and six noes, then the answer was uh, yes. If you had, you know, even if you had four noes and you know the rest yeses can't even do multiplication ad- addition here, then it'll be more, you know, yes, absolutely, yes, that kind of thing, so it's pretty straightforward that's and they would um actually take these um these div- divin- diviners diviners with them like on campaign, like a whole it was a whole process, Yeah, we have reliefs of them, and I'm pretty sure these reliefs are the ones outside of uh Lachish, and where they had the you know, you, you see that they're cutting a sheep's liver and they're doing the, the work, you know, probably asking, like, should we attack the north wall or the south wall? Or I guess yes or no. The north? Should we attack the north wall? No. Okay, let's ask him if the south. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got to get another sheep.
1: <laughs> but the, I remember Sargon II making references to his diviners, and they seem to be around all the time.
2: All the time. And, and there's also a way, they say, to, to show that the king, even when he was on campaign, kept the order of the, you know, the Assyrian order went with them. Because they took the cooks, they took everything. And now, Mesopotamian astrology is is known from astrology and astronomy from, you know, way, way back. They were following the skies. The Assyrian king had scholars, you know, that he employed that read, read the stars, and they called it the heavenly writing, Um, Because that was their word for the constellations, the heavenly writing. And we have have, to remember it, too. There was more stars in the sky than we see today because of the light.
1: I have to cut in there and say that uh, Babylonian astronomy has been uh, very influential recently in star naming. So they have gone to uh, deciding the the correct name for stars. And they are using a lot of Babylonian names now.
2: that is Interesting. The Babylonian names aren't that easy to pronounce either.
1: No, but it makes the star sounds really cool.
2: Definitely. And you know what? Give them it. The Babylonians should get a break. I mean, everything's been named by from the Greeks all these years. Really, the Mesopotamians got the whole ball rolling, right?
1: So it's like uh, we accidentally learned a lot about sheep livers and the stars through this <laughs> two nations. Exactly. <laughs>
2: exactly. You know, and while they were inside there, they must have seen more than just a liver. And like, oh, there's the heart and the lungs and every I'm sure they were cutting up sheep and stuff, but still, We definitely learned a lot about the livers. We do have we have we have tablets, you know, that shows where how the divination worked and that kind of thing. But anyway, so this the heavenly writing was a little bit different than the sheep's liver because it wasn't a yes no question. So they could um it was much more open-ended and it basically required watching the stars every night and then just recording what was going on and trying to extrapolate the opinions and trends. And then certain constellations were very strongly associated with the king, with the kingdom of Assyria in general. And then when observations were made about these specific constellations, they were thought to intimately concern the fate of the king and the state. And therefore, they reported back to the king, who adjusted his decision-making in order to suit this. Which is, you know, it is what it is. (laughs) I mean, you know, Ezra Haddon was very um, superstitious in this way about this, but also because he was, he was, uh, he had the diseases. You know, he had, he was sickly.
1: So any any unusual event in the sky will create a lot of heavenly writing, like a, a solar eclipse or a comet. Oh,
2: forget it. Remember, we found out that there was. I found out after there was a solar eclipse. Oh no, there was a lunar eclipse um, during Ezra Haddon's time. It was right around the time he was moving to Egypt, too. I mean, he thought he was cursed by the moon god scene, and then there's this lunar eclipse. He must have went out of his mind. I mean, if you literally believe that the moon is a god, and he's against you, and you're the king on... In other words, you're, the Assyrian emperor was sort of like the son of God. So if you're the son of God, and you're not a perfect man with this rash on your face, and you're sickly and depressed, I couldn't imagine. He must have been just such a tragic figure to then have a lunar eclipse. And then there was another event that we found that in 670 B.C., and the sky was, like, lit up. Maybe Asher didn't really didn't like Ezra and I don't know.
1: Seems like he didn't.
2: <laughs> Maybe. So another interesting thing, I know I'm a little bit all over, but I'm going to mention about the temples, because it's super interesting, is that I know that I said that they sacrifice the sheep, or whatever kind of an animal is, and then they have a feast, and they will eat it. Um, but also, just specifically, Karen Radner says specifically for Asher, and this is what made you an Assyrian as being a worshiper of Asher, is that there was a ceremony in the in the um, temples across the empire where you had to eat um, from the actual temple in in Asher, um, because that rock that comes out of uh, the, by the river is, is is essentially supposed to kind of be Asher. I mean, now he's transcendent, but that's where he would come to. So at his temple there, they would do a sacrifice, and then the food would have to go across the empire. So that would mean, you know, it has to go to Haran, it has to go to Babylonia. And it probably wasn't in the best of shape by the time it got there, but it was just a ceremonial thing, kind of like eating communion. And Catholic, you know, you just have to have a little bite. But it was probably pretty nasty. Everybody, um, if you guys have been checking out the Facebook page, I've been trying to keep it more active. Facebook has a business uh, for the, for our pages. I could use my phone better. So I've been trying to keep, keep active on there, post some interesting links of history articles that I, I read many, many, many of them. And the most interesting ones I, I've been trying to post. So, you know, check that out. I've been getting more responses from the listeners. I think that's awesome. I appreciate that. So keep that up. And uh, we'll see you again next... Oh, don't forget our Patreon page, right? Yeah, if
1: you like what we do, please support us on Patreon. That is what keeps us going. So patreon.com, fan of history. Whenever we make an episode, you pay us. If we don't make episodes, you don't pay us. What a good deal. See you next time, Bernie.
2: See you next time, Dan.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time.